the lecture list for today says there's going to be one lecture on the Bible and sexuality, and only one. In preparing my notes, I discovered that was just completely unworkable, so we're going to have two lectures on the Bible um, and sex. Um, if you also notice on that lecture list, I've quite deliberately kept one week unscheduled, so basically we've now already filled that. So that means your lecture <laughs> list, everything will be one date out. Can you cope with that, or do I need to give you a, a new list of dates? You can cope with that. Okay, right. You are third and fourth theologians, yes, so. Are you all fourth theology? I'm third. You're third, okay, I thought so. Right, okay. Good, so, um, the... The lecture notes don't just say it's the Bible on sex, the Bible on sex and marriage. And obviously if we're thinking what does the Bible tell us, actually that in a sense is the first thing it tells us. That the context it's thinking about sex and portraying sex is always, um, unless it's portraying something wrong, in the context of marriage. So um, even though this is a course on sexual morality, um, a fair bit of what these notes are unpacking is talking about marriage, not just trying to talk about sex, as that could be isolated from that. Um, so there are 14 pages of notes there. Basically, I'm thinking we'll do seven pages today, roughly seven pages next session. Um, and at this stage in your formation, you've probably covered almost all of the Bible already. You've done a lot on different courses. So it should feel, as I'm talking about different things, as if this is reviewing rather than giving you fresh material, but reviewing it with a very focused aim, thinking what does sacred scripture, what does this, our, one of our pivotal sources in moral theology, what does it tell us about the subject matter we're looking at? Um, so it shouldn't be surprising or alarming or disappointing if I'm not giving you fresh stuff today, but hopefully um, a more focused look at some of the things. And over those 14 pages, we're going to start with Genesis and end with Genesis. So in the New Testament, um, the Lord Jesus says, in the beginning, he takes us back to Genesis. And likewise, St. Paul, which will be the very last text we look at in his household codes, again takes us back to Adam and Eve, the, the couple there in the garden. So they're kind of portrayed to us. If there's kind of one thing in the scriptures that sums it up, it is that account. Okay, so to my notes there, page one. So Genesis, what does the Genesis account? I've summed up two words there in terms of what it tells us, unity and fertility. Um, the Bible's portrayal of human sexuality um, it starts in the creation account. Um, so that's where we've got to, uh, in a sense, unpack and separate what's being said about marriage and sex, in a sense, from what's being brought more broadly said about creation. Got a little reminder there, um, also partly taking us into some of the things we looked at last time. So. 
the ancient Near East context of the Genesis creation account. So as you'd have done on other courses, you know, there were all kinds of other creation accounts in Babylon and whatever. What was different about this creation account? We'll say here, Israel's monotheistic faith stands in contrast to the sexualized notions of gods and goddesses and fertility rites associated with those gods. The pagan myths of the ancient Near East civilizations portrayed the gods as having carnal sexual relations with each other and, and procreating. Procreating in the sense that the gods beget other gods. So again, that's something different in the Genesis account. So that gods just isn't in our realm of sexuality. Our realm of sexuality is portrayed as something good, but it's not something God is dipping into the way Zeus would come down and have a cohort, consort rather. Um, human sexuality was experienced as something mysterious, having an almost alien reality whose power could be appropriated through participation in the cultic myth. That was the pagan notion. In contrast, the God of Genesis is not a procreator, but is creator. There's this transcendent difference between him and what he's creating. He doesn't fashion things out of pre-existing things or as part of them. The Jewish and subsequently Christian understanding of human sexuality was developed in the context of monotheistic belief in a transcendent creator God who did not have sexual consort. In one way of expressing it, human sexuality is thus separated from religious ritual and secularized as a consequence of monotheism. For the Jew, human sexuality was understood as an earthly human reality, a good reality, but a human one, an earthly one. Whereas in another way of framing it, Israel's faith in her moral life was thus a unity. A moral life was a form of religious worship but not the worship of the temple prostitutes. Um, William may only touch on this briefly, but I don't know if you picked it up. It is quite, because um, we use the word secularize in almost always a negative context, yes? So to read somebody saying that the Bible had a secularized version of sex might seem weird, but it's wanting to make the contrast that's not like the pagan fertility rites we were looking at last time. Are you with me? Did you pick that up in the reading? It wasn't much in there, but... Um, so you know, the, the word secular, like so many words, can be used very differently in different contexts. So just need to be aware as we're using it. But I, I noticed a number of different texts I was looking at all use that same description, um, secularized sex. But what they're meaning is it's not like temple prostitutes or gods dipping into our sexuality. It's a sexuality that is separate from these pagan gods, distinct from a transcendent god, but a good thing nonetheless. Okay, so two truths in particular that stand out um, in this. Um, first is fertility. Um, so fertility is a good. So if we're thinking, where are we first reading about sex and marriage? In the context of creation. 
and creation is all about this new life, fertility. So as I map it out there, fertility is a good. New life is the heart of God's purpose in creation. Let the earth put forth vegetation. Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. And then God created humankind, Hebrew Adam, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So that, in a sense, is the heart of the biblical vision there at the beginning. Um, God wants creation. He wants life. Fertility is a blessing. The purpose of sexuality, according to the first chapter of Genesis, and who am I quoting here? Carl Peschke, one of the old manualists. The purpose of sexuality, according to the first chapter of Genesis, is the bearing of offspring. The words express a mandate and a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. So this is both God commanding it, but also issuing a blessing. And in the Old Testament, fertility is seen as a blessing. Would you have done that directly in your Old Testament courses? Or not really touched on? The, the thought of fertility being a blessing in the Old Testament. Yeah. It's just if we think of our own context, fertility is always a problem. You know, that the, our contraceptive culture, new children is almost always presented as a problem. Unless you're my age and suddenly deciding you want to have a child and then it's a desperate thing and it's a, a right to have. Um, and the government needs to fund it and whatever. Whereas the Old Testament, fertility is a blessing. And if somebody isn't fertile, it's presented as a curse. Um, and so we have these rare occasions where there's this old barren woman who is somehow nonetheless blessed by God, chosen by God, and then is given a child. Um, that to not be fertile is a problem. To not be fertile in that culture would look as if God didn't like you. So, you know, what does the Bible tell us? That is one of the key things, and it's not what our society today tells us. Okay, so I said two pivotal truths there in the text. That's the first, over the page then. And again, this is a point that almost would have been you know, even 50 years ago, so obvious it wouldn't need elaborating. But now in our culture today, male-female difference, complementarity, being established by God, actually this is a really important thing that the Bible uh, is telling us. So, male-female unity and complementarity. Man and woman are made for each other. And the creation account makes quite a thing of it. So, and obviously here I'm cutting and pasting, but the narrative is, it is not good that man should be alone. Among the animals for the man, Adam, not one was found as a helper, uh, as his partner. 
Um, then I'm just inserting um, the woman. Where does she come from? She doesn't come from the earth, the way the plants and the animals do. She comes from his own flesh. So therefore, she's this false of equality, of dignity. She's coming from his own source. She's not like the animals and the plants. Then man said, at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Um, I don't know enough Hebrew to elaborate in detail, but there is this word play going on in the different Hebrew words. So that the word we translate as Adam in this text differentiating the man and the woman, the word for Adam isn't male, it's somehow a humanity. And out of that is separated these two things with these two different words that are very similar in our English language structure of man and woman. Um, but that isn't, the original one before wasn't man. Whereas in our English translation, we can somehow think there was man and then you have man and woman, as if man was complete before woman. But no, that's not actually what the language indicates. And even the structure that out of his flesh, this woman is formed so that he is therefore incomplete without her, that the two together become the one flesh that they were to begin with. And this is part of the Creator's plan. So back to my notes. Man exists as sexually differentiated by reason of the Creator's plan. quoting William May, that actually it's somehow through their sexuality being men and women that men and women image God in the world. That male and female together as humans are in the image of God. And Peshke sums it up this way, he says, human heterosexuality is the work of the creator. That therefore far from this being something, you know, that heterosexuality is imposed on the text. Um, rather, this is the plan that's being revealed there in the scriptures. Differentiation and complementarity. The two, the man and the woman, are, are different but made for each other, made that together they are complete. So a woman and a woman don't bring that completionness together. A man and a man don't bring that completeness together. There's the difference between them means that when together they become complete, become that one. Then spelling out what I said briefly above, this also means that woman is equal to man. So bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, as opposed to formed of the earth like plants and animals. I've already noted the language thing. And so, um, the fact that, as recorded in the scripture, 
um, man dominates the woman is not in the original plan. So it's only after the fall that Eve is told, he will lord it over you. That this is a consequence of the fall, that pattern in male-female relationships. Whereas in the beginning there was a complementarity, but not, um, to use the word patriarchy as the feminists would, that vision of patriarchy wasn't there in the beginning. So all of this means that, as I say here, sex and sexuality are very good. So you know in this creation account, there's, it's, the, it was good, it was good, it was good. We were made very good as uh, so the high point of creation. Sexuality is the work of God. Therefore, it is certainly good and even very good. That prior to the entrance of sin into the world, man and woman felt no shame in their nakedness. So this is a significant point in terms of what sexuality is. It was such a pure thing, a good thing, that naked before each other they felt no shame, and that the text spells that out. And it's only after the fall that shame enters the world and there's this need to cover nakedness. I didn't write it in here, but I was rereading William May making the point about so contrasting, and obviously he's picking up John Paul II's nuptial vision of the body, and that the body itself speaks of marriage to the other, and that that is covered as a result of the original sin in clothing ourselves, we kind of cover that nuptial meaning of the body, that there's a, an inability to relate to each other as, as easily, as freely as it, it would have been manifest. Again, I'm sure you've done this before, looking at the creation account, but the, the original sin, I've said here, disrupts all relationships. Disrupts the relationship between man and God. Disrupts the relation between man and creation and work, so that man is told it is by the sweat of your brow that you will toil. But somehow before that, work was a blessing, not a curse. And here's the pivotal point in our context. Man to woman, he will lord it over you the equality between them has been disrupted. Now, got a little aside there um, in terms of concubiscence. So we have, you know, in the Catholic tradition, this word concubiscence by which we refer to the disorder that's in our passions. That our human passions, as we'll look later as we look at the virtues, the passions are themselves good. The passions are themselves from God. The passions are of themselves just what we are, but because of original sin, there's a disorder within them. They're not ordered properly. They fight against each other, and the more base passions also easily dominate over um, the more important passions. And although the Jewish scriptures don't have this written in the Old Testament, it is in the Jewish oral tradition of an evil inclination similar to what we would call concupiscence. So I conclude that little section saying, yet in none of this is there any implication that sex per se has become evil or tainted. So the original sin damages the whole pattern of relationships. 
cause them to feel shame, to veil their bodies in front of each other. But even so, there's no implication that sex per se has become evil in itself. It's just how we're engaging with it that has become a problem. Okay, and the last point on that page, and obviously here, um, this language of self-gift really has been articulated. This is an example of us since using John Paul II's language, even when we're not really talking about theology of the body. But it is really there in the Genesis account. Man and woman made for each other, made for self-gift. Self-gift being one of JP2's big phrases. That sexuality is a divine gift that reveals to the person that he or she is being made for living with and living for the other, culminating in the total gift of self. The solitude of Adam reveals that the person in his body is a being that carries within himself a profound need of living with others in relationship. And that the sexual differentiation leads to the recognition of this need and assists with this living with the other. So I'm guessing you'll all have dipped into bits of John Paul II's Theology of the Body in different sources, but he starts his analysis in the Genesis text. And for him, the solitude, the loneliness of Adam is hugely, hugely significant as an image of our being made for the other. So we are made for... To, to exist with another and to exist for another. Any things to comment, sorry? Yeah, Joseph? Yeah, I guess uh, the point of solitude of Adam, for example, which reconciled it with the notion that Adam was one human Because in a sense it doesn't need reconciling, that the text indicates it's a problem, the fact he's there alone. That he needs a helper, he needs a partner, but he's all alone. The question... Yeah, the question is, is it still possible that when God created Adam, it was man and woman at the same time, or there's a possibility that man was created first and then he was alone. Maybe I don't. Well, let me say I believe in evolution. So I believe this is a text that is teaching us something profound about the nature of humanity and the nature of man and woman. 
but I wouldn't t take it as a scientific description of how that creation happened. Because I don't think it's aiming to be a scientific exposition, it's aiming to teach us theological truths. Is that the, the root of your problem, that you're trying to envisage this scientifically? Sorry, James had his hand up first. Uh, I think uh, it has to do with the two creation accounts. The priestly account uses Adam, then the Eurist, uh, which is the one which presents that uh, what you're talking about, that man was Adam, then he found a helper. Uh, that's the one which brings out man as a male at first. And then looking at all the animals around him, there was none which was like him. Has that clarified anything for you, Joyce? Okay. Now, I actually don't hold the whole priestly account, Yahwistic account. Um, one of the critiques sometimes given of John Paul II's um, Theology of the Body Catechesis is that he portrays that buying into that, whereas it's a very particular scriptural theory. The um, I don't know if is that still what's taught here? That's what we were taught, yeah. The, the four-source theory? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that is critiqued. Um, I'm not sure there's a coherent alternative, as a, um, which is probably why it's still taught here. Um, I don't know if it... And if Father Wagner doesn't hold to the documentary hypothesis as strictly as the priest who taught us mm -hmm. tend to do. And obviously there are multiple sources that existed before things were written down. I don't think you, um, I'm not that much of a fundamentalist, but um, I'm a, a little wary of overly following a single biblical theory in how we then interpret the text. Thanks. Actually, you've got a, another question just about this. Something that's 
never seemed entirely clear to me either from when I took Pentateuch or from reading this. We know that Adam and Eve's relationship before the fall was complementary, like you said, you had that complementarity, but was it a sexual relationship? Because there, you know, it doesn't explicitly say that until Genesis 4. It says Adam knew his wife and she conceived, and then that's when Cain and Abel were born. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, certainly, like what you say, sex isn't tainted by the fall, but that's the thing. Was that part of their relationship prior to the fall? Because it almost seems like taking into context what Jesus said about how marriage won't exist as we know it now in heaven, you know, I'm kind of more inclined to think maybe it maybe that aspect wasn't there yet prior to the fall. Again, not saying that sex is the result of it or that it's sinful per se, but it doesn't seem clear that that was an aspect of their relationship. You'd be right to point out the text is silent on that question. So different commentators down the centuries have spoken differently, and the fathers speak differently in terms of where they would put that. So the question of Adam and Eve having relations before the fall, um, what that would have meant, the fact they only have a child after the fall. If there, if the prelapsarian um, relationship between Adam and Eve didn't include sex, I don't know how to make sense of. Therefore, man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Like that, that seems to me to indicate that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sexual union was a part of paradise in the beginning. No, so I think that's the obvious way to read the text. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose I would be. I would feel a need to say others read it differently down the centuries. Okay. Um, not necessarily, I think, coherently differently, but um, so my theological understanding of the text is yes, they would have had relations before the fall, or at least potentially. Um, and again, because I would hold with evolution, I don't think this is a scientific description of mm -hmm. how things were. Mm -hmm. um, but there would have been a time when man and woman related to each other before concupiscence, so that their desires wouldn't have been disordered. So hopefully one of the sources I'll give you to read later will touch on it. A British theologian I follow called Edward Holloway. He speculates that in the same way that in the animal kingdom, a, man, uh, and a male and female will only have sex will only mate when the time is appropriate. That Adam and Eve might only have felt the desire for that aspect when it was appropriate. Um, so that our whole concept of, of desire and sexual relations would have to be, it would have been very different in the beginning from what we experience it. Whereas for us, it's difficult to imagine sexual relations not having the taint of lust in them. Mm -hmm. 
the taint of self-seeking. I guess what, so when male and female animals mate when it's appropriate, what is, I guess I can understand what that means, but what, do you, what would he mean by saying when it's appropriate for man and woman? I think drawing that, that analogy creates some questions in my mind because the purpose of, of sexual relations isn't only procreation. procreative, it's punitive also. Right. So I guess. And I just Let's come back to that some question later in the course because okay. we're getting away from the Bible text here. Um, but no, so there are a whole lot of related questions with that. Okay, but the key point is is in creation. It's good. The only time there's any problem associated is after sin, not in itself. Okay, let's look on page three. And here I am kind of doing huge leaps in summarizing the Old Testament. So the next kind of category on this page is what do the prophets tell us as a vision of marriage? Um, And obviously, as you know, that's many, many, many hundreds of years later. But the basic point is the prophets, time and time again, will compare the relationship between God and his people as a covenant of marriage. So this is actually telling us something about marriage. That's what this page is saying. The prophetic development, the covenantal model of marriage. See, this image, um, marriage as a covenant, gives great dignity to marriage, and also gives a model of faithfulness for marriage. The prophetic books add a new dimension to the Old Testament vision of marriage, namely covenant. Just reminding you what a covenant means, God and his chosen people are in a covenant with each other, in this context, married to each other. God is the husband, meaning the initiator, the provider, the protector, and Israel is the wife. In a covenant, love and fidelity are demanded from both parties, from God and from Israel. They're both to be faithful to each other. They're both to to love each other. Um, And obviously what the prophets are continually pointing out is that God is being faithful continually, and you're not. Um, But basically the prophets use the paradigm of marriage to describe the chosen people's relationship with the Lord. Fidelity, infidelity. So again, in contrast to so many of those pagan cultures where infidelity wasn't a problem, actually this is how marriage and the covenant are being portrayed. Fidelity is a really important thing in the covenant, in parallel, important in marriage. So the prophet Hosea. So Hosea is the first prophet to use the marriage image to portray the covenant. Um, Hosea married an adulterous wife named Goma, who should have been put to death for her crime of adultery, but who Hosea forgave, brought back, and took back to himself. So Hosea's reaction represents the response of the Lord to unfaithful Israel. Yes, you're all familiar with the passage. Um, So Hosea didn't divorce his wife or put her to death. He recognized that the Lord would never break his covenant with Israel 
but would charm her and betroth her anew, thus showing authentic conjugal love. So that Hosea's action towards Gomer reveals and makes real in representation the action of the Lord's unfailing love for Israel. And note that whether Gomer actually existed or was some kind of prophetic parable is irrelevant to the teaching that the prophetic message is conveying. Because it is possible to read that text and say it's just so bizarre happening literally that did God really command Hosea to, to literally do that and did he? Or is it just a parable? Either way, the teaching it's conveying is the same. So Hosea is the first prophet to use this marriage image of the covenant. Or you could put that in reverse, this covenant image of marriage. Because that's our focus. Okay, um, many centuries later, down the prophetic years, um, by the time of Malachi, later post-exilic, the prophet Malachi, um, we find this drawn to its logical conclusion, that if marriage is modelled on the unbreakable relation between God and his people, then divorce is contrary to God's vision of marriage. I'm quoting Malachi, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And I note that this foreshadows the New Testament with Christ and the church as the new covenant. This vision of marriage will be taken up in a more profound way in the New Testament. Hosea's portrayal of marriage can be seen as a veiled breakthrough of the New Testament idea of marriage, according to Schillerbeck. You're all familiar with the prophets, done whole courses on them. Um, and presumably talked about the, the covenant pattern within them. Um, anything to throw out? Observations? Well, just in, in the context of what we're looking at here. always I think a domination with a benefit in that you know when the ruling power forces you to submit and make a covenant you do get the protection of the ruling power um, not on your terms on his terms um, so there's an element in which the covenant model is only partial as what it tells us about marriage but it is the key context we're drawing from this is the question of fidelity, that this is a really big thing 
as the vision of marriage uh, that is implicit in all of that. That God is faithful. Even when his spouse is unfaithful, he is faithful. That this is a vision of the good marriage. Okay, over the page. So, again, leaping forward in time, um, so the wisdom literature, as you know, the wisdom literature is more or less the, the last part of the development, and the wisdom literature covers a big span as well um, of time. Um, but in the wisdom literature, two things in particular that in our context stand out. One is a model couple that is given to us as William May referred to Tobias and his wife Sarah. Um, but then the other thing is the Song of Songs. So first, Tobias and Sarah, a model couple. So the Book of Tobit gives us a portrayal of the model couple, Tobias and Sarah. What do they portray as a vision of marriage? Well, romantic desire, so desire isn't a problem. A mutual love between them. Um, I don't know if I write it down here, but you know, Tobias repeatedly refers to Sarah as his sister. So in terms of dignity and equality between the two, um, I think that's significant. A mutual help in their trials. So they have, if you remember anything about the account, they have a, a pretty, a whole set of difficulties, but they face them together. Um, they have a desire for children. Um, they pray that they be granted a child. Um, their temperance and self-control with respect to sexuality, that they wait. They have a prayerful disposition. They pray before their marriage and they pray before having sex. Now, in particular, if you remember the context, um, the expectation, so Sarah had, was it seven wives, who had all, seven husbands before who had all died on the night of the wedding? Um, so you might think he might pray with particular earnestness <laughs> but nonetheless I think that is putting a context um, a positive context of sex if, if that's you're praying in that context you couldn't be praying if it was a bad thing you were about to do and they pray for a des they have this desire to grow old together which is why this text is often used in weddings um, if you use it in a wedding, you do have to explain the whole thing of him referring to her as his sister, because that does get very bizarre otherwise. Um, so what we have again implicit, even in the Old Testament, even though there's this mosaic permission for divorce, the good of indissolubility is already being portrayed there in the Old Testament. So say, here in the post-exilic period, the end of the Old Testament development of the notion of marriage. The text links us back to the beginning. Tobias's prayer explicitly references Genesis. You, O God of our ancestors, said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Let us make him, make a helper for him like himself. Okay, then the other key thing from the wisdom literature, the um, Song of Songs. So have you, how much have you done this in your wisdom courses? Have you done wisdom courses yet? No, you haven't. We don't cover Song of Songs. As a principle. 
So, yeah. but you're vaguely familiar with the Song of Songs. Um, so it's this, you know, in the Bible concept, it says weirdly erotic piece of love poetry. Um, you know, referring the, the bridegroom referring to the breasts of his beloved and so forth. Now, down the centuries, that's been interpreted differently and almost violently differently. Both Jewish rabbis and patristic sources will condemn those who interpret this literally and say, no, it's only um, an imagery of the relationship between God and his people. Well, there are other commentators of the same periods who say, no, it is a literal celebration And my analysis would be, even if its original intent was symbolic, so in talking about the beauty of sex, it being a symbol of the relationship, in, of God's desire for his people and vice versa, you can only use that as a model if the thing you're basing it on is a good thing in itself. It wouldn't make sense to model it on something evil and problematic. So I think either interpretation, for our purposes, ends up with the same conclusion. The fact it's there in the Bible only makes sense if actually sex and sexual desire is a gift from God, is a good thing. Okay, let me read through my notes here, saying that a bit more slowly. The Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, is a long erotic text describing the longing of two lovers for each other. For example, the man describes a woman's breasts with delight, no shame, no embarrassment. Possibly no book in the Bible is subject to such dramatic and conflicting interpretations as the Song of Songs. Some interpret it symbolically, referring to the love of Christ and the Church or God in Israel. Many mystics have elaborated on this book, book such as St. Bernard of Claveau or John of the Cross. But others interpret it literally as a celebration of the goodness of sex, per se. As if regardless, it's impossible to interpret this text in a puritanical or Jansenistic manner. That even if the text is an allegory, it must be referring to something good, something worthy of being compared to God's love for his bride. So that therefore, sex is good, desire is appropriate, Love per se is exalted, not just marriage or procreation. But nonetheless, this love leads to marriage in the text and leads to a union that is exclusive and permanent, setting a seal on your heart. Do you do Jansenism in church history? Now, Jansenism is a heresy, but it's a heresy that's never been formally condemned in terms of the definitions. So, you know, when we condemn Arianism, it's fairly precise. Jansenism is much more a trend that gets church authority and preaching directed against it, but not really defined. In the context of moral theology and even more in the context of sexual morality, the problem with it um, 
if it's true, and as much as the trends of it are true, is it means sex has no place in real religion. It's just something you do, in a sense, when God's not looking. And maybe God doesn't mind, but the best is that God's not looking at this stage. Because Jansenism holds that, in, I mean, because it's not a defined thing, um, it's hard to specify, but basically that this world is tainted, um, this world isn't good, that desire is, is a bad thing, um, that much like Puritanism, if you're enjoying yourself, that's a problem. God wants you to be miserable. He wants the, those, like the, you know, the, the um, those Midwestern farmers, that picture that they're so serious looking, yeah? Um, that that's your vision of your American Puritan. Um, good, successful, but very serious. Um, I don't know if Jansenism has got anywhere in Africa. So Jansenism was a French heresy. So my guess is the French missionaries would have been likely to bring Jansenism in some form. So in the American culture, Jansenism would be here via the Irish. So the Irish, if you know your history, they weren't allowed to train their priests in Ireland because it was illegal in England and Ireland. So they trained in France. But because they trained in France, they got contaminated with the Jansenist heresy, which they then, with great vigor, took to Ireland and exported it all across the world. But the French may have taken it to Africa. Do you know Jansenism talked about in your home countries? It's not visible. And I'm trying to remember the history. It, 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 were the French were in your part of Africa? They were in yours. Yes, dominant. But sometimes it might even depend which religious orders were kind of leading the way, how much an influence got in. So the Jesuits were very anti-Jansenistic. Uh, and their devotion to the Sacred Heart, this loving image of God rather than this harsh, condemning vision of God. Um, the portrayal, the, the spread of the devotion to the Sacred Heart was one of the, the antidotes to Jansenism. The problem is, in many cases, it just kind of put a sugar coating around the heresy of Jansenism. That the, the problem of how flesh was viewed wasn't really touched, but you just have a, a loving, nice, smiley God on the outside. Um, who, therefore, still, when you're in the bedroom, you just hope God's not looking. Okay, so the Song of Songs, why am I saying that? The Song of Songs is actually the very opposite. Here, sex is portrayed uh, as, as a beautiful thing, a thing rejoiced in. Um, desire, physical desire, is a good thing. Okay, um, page five. Okay, let's see if I can get through the next three pages. 20 minutes. So basically here, this isn't a very exciting little section, but I've just 
listed specific sexual prohibitions in the Old Testament. Um, so this is all the negative, all the things that you may not do, but these are all things that kind of in reverse tell us something, therefore, about what we should be aiming for. Yeah? So I say, listing some specific sexual practices that the Old Testament condemns highlights the significance and meaning of sexuality. That sex is very important, and thus related penalties are severe. Um, that sexual activity is for a husband and wife and for fertility. So if you think about it, if you have the death penalty for something, you only have the death penalty for it if it's something important. So the fact that these various sexual sins and number have the death penalty attached indicates that this is an important part of how, how they lived. So adultery. Adultery, strictly forbidden in the Decalogue. Incest, likewise, strictly prohibited and severely punished, resulting in banishment even down to the 10th generation. I do notice as a little aside, actually incest is prohibited in pretty much any culture and civilization. So that's not unique to, to the Old Testament, but it is there. Bestiality, having relations with an animal. Um, I have a question. Yeah. On incest. Uh, it seems like for the Jews, it was, it was okay to marry within one's uh, tribe. Place. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it's a cousin. I don't know if I can call that if I marry their cousin. That you could marry a cousin, but you couldn't marry a sister, which would be strictly how incest would be. What was your question? It looks like uh, because they had to marry within their tribe. Mm. I don't know how we can call that like, incest because tribes usually are very very uh, related singular. I'll be honest and I don't know my um, my definition of incest closely enough in the Old Testament to answer that question. Other than they'd never marry a sibling, but they would marry within the tribe, would marry a relation. And usually in the Old Testament context, marry one who follows the true God, so that's why you're sticking with someone of the house of Israel. I don't have a better answer than that. So on to bestiality. Um, just as a little confessional note, you will get this in confession very occasionally. Uh, it's not a, a common thing. Uh, in my experience, when it comes up, it's attached to such shame and embarrassment that as a priest, you really don't need to say much at all. The fact that they are there and mentioning it, um, they know it's a problem. So we then, yeah, I think we've probably all had that feeling, that sensation when the priest says, oh, don't worry about that, that's not really a sin. 
and that I can feel very dismissive. You know, it took me some effort to bring this here to confession and you've just dismissed it. So if somebody confesses a grave sin like this, we need to very gently say something that we're acknowledging that this is a big thing you've brought to the Lord and it's great that you've done so. But something like this we don't need to say much about. Because I think it's almost always the case if they're there, they realize it's a problem. And they, yeah, anyway, enough of that. Um, so, uh, why is bestiality a problem? What does it highlight for us? Well, I say such activity could never lead to procreation, which is strictly forbidden. Absolutely foreign to the understanding of human sexuality as a social institution of the Old Testament. So Genesis 2.20 recalls that a man could not find a suitable partner for himself among the animals. Collins, Raymond Collins suggests that that um, may go back to weird stuff going on that way in the pagan fertility religions in Canaan. Okay, homosexual, homosexual activity. Uh, this likewise was condemned as severity as bestiality. Um, Leviticus 2013 refers to homosexual activity as an abomination requiring death. Have you analyzed the text of Sodom and Gomorrah and the exact sin of Sodom at Sodom? So, um, Sodom is destroyed because the Sodomites were engaging in such things. But some modern commentators have said, no, that the real sin was their lack of hospitality, um, not the fact they wanted to have uh, Sodomist unions. Um, I think the more obvious reading of the text is that actually all of that is together um, and that, that, that therefore it is being indicated as a sin in itself. Um, so just reading my notes there. Sodomy, despite anal sexual intercourse receiving its name from the account of what has happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, Recent scholars debate whether the sin of Sodom refers to homosexuality, or whether it refers to rape, lack of hospitality, or an attempt to gain sexual power or domination over others. As I say, I think those are just are all part of the same mix in this context. Okay, in the Old Testament, um, what's called the sin of Onanism. Uh, so Onan in the Old Testament, um, so masturbation is usually related to this passage. Um, then Judas said to Onan, go to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, um, in the legal sense of being raised as his child, he spilled his seed on the ground whenever he went to his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he, the Lord, put him to death. So I say that onanism has traditionally been interpreted by Christians as the sin of masturbation. And so there are 
modern scholars who would dispute that, that would say, well, no, the sin was the fact he failed to produce children for his brother's, for his brother's wife. Um, but a bit like the Sodom scenario, I think actually, and this is William May's analysis, that the end and the means were both wrong. Um, but the fact that the end was wrong doesn't mean the means were therefore all right. So that this is, in a sense, the literal text that would be pointed to in terms of the sin of masturbation. But generally speaking, with so much of our morality, actually it's the oral tradition of the Jews that really is what we rely on for interpreting um, lots of these behaviours. Okay, page six. Contraception. Um, I say, well, not explicit, the biblical prohibition of contraception, contraceptive practices can be inferred from the text. The argument that Jews allowed contraception since the Old Testament texts are not explicit on this point is merely an argument from silence. It becomes difficult to substantiate when you consider the high value placed on children and the great stigma of barrenness in Jewish society. The Catholic tradition, and in fact all Christians from the early church until the early 20th century has never approved contraceptive practices. Abortion. Um, with respect to abortion, the Old Testament says very little. There's only a passing reference to abortion in Exodus, which requires, um, the text requires compensation for a spontaneous abortion resulting from harm done to a woman. While well, the text does not indicate the equivalence between mater maternal and fetal loss, the text does indicate the loss of an unborn child was a loss. So here again, the argument from silence becomes different, difficult to substantiate. The argument from silence meaning there are some modern commentators that say, well, the Old Testament doesn't say anything explicit on this point, therefore it says nothing. And that just doesn't fit in the broader context. Okay, the last of these points in this section is about virginity. Um, so this isn't something, um, something in the New Testament becomes a positive. So virginity. The command to be fruitful and multiply was one of the 613 Jewish laws that had to be kept. The high regard for fertility in marriage meant that consecrated virginity had no place in Old Testament. So, for example, uh, Jephartha's daughter um, mourned her virginity, knowing that she would die as a virgin. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful phrase to sum that up, that virginity is a problem. She mourned the fact she would die a virgin. If we remember, the early Old Testament had no explicit belief in life after death, and thus immortality was only assured through having children. So to not have children, you know, that's one of the reasons it was such a big curse, a big problem. Christ's promise of the resurrection radically transformed this. Whereas Christian celibacy remains a puzzle to many Jews even today. Don't know, you may well, as I have occasionally had conversations, you know, as a celibate priest with a rabbi or a Jew, 
and, and they find this one of the weird things about us because it doesn't fit into their narrative. Um, so William May makes a passing reference to this. The Essenes at the time of our Lord um, may have been an exception to this. They may have practiced celibacy, but within Judaism, um, that was and would be today very rare. So in the Old Testament, Jeremiah and John the Baptist stand out as unusual, unmarried Old Testament figures. Jeremiah was celibate, but his celibacy was meant to express something negative about Israel's future. I think Father Wagner elaborates on that in his course, yes? Do you remember? No? Okay, right, because he was just telling me last week about the whole thing he was preparing. So that Jeremiah, you know, he's this prophet with this message of gloom and disaster for the people, that the people have no future. And he is a living embodiment in that, and the fact he will have no children is a symbol of how Israel will have no future. Um, so that Jeremiah is the only Old Testament figure we have like that, but his virginity, his celibacy, isn't a beautiful thing. It's a sign of everything that's going to go wrong for the Jewish people because they've been unfaithful and they're going off to exile. Uh, any comments on that little section? she'd have been a virgin before she got married, obviously that would be being presumed in that culture. Um, I think it, I don't, well, I don't think it would have been likely it would have been known, because it would have been so weird, that would have meant the Lord Jesus's would have been viewed as weird from the very beginning, and we don't find people, at least recorded in the Gospels, as commenting on that. He's that weird one whose mother is still a virgin. They'd probably said that. Rather than saying he's the carpenter's son, they'd have said, <laughs> you know. contraceptive context as well mm -hmm. and I think it could well illuminate both um, so contraception is his intent but his method um, would fit the context of masturbation okay. so and to be honest I think there's a, a risk of being overly fundamentalist in kind of 
thinking we have to have an explicit verse in the Bible that we can point to to say masturbation is a problem. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the book Every Young Man's Battle about the struggle of pornography and masturbation. Um, fantastic book to um, use with young adults. Um, but it's written by Protestants, and although it's got fantastic advice on how to get a young man out of um, those habits, um, it doesn't, because it's Protestant, have an ability to say masturbation is a sin. So there's a long, elaborate section where the, it's written by two authors, where they're trying to argue that, well, we think it must be a sin, but, but the Bible doesn't actually say so. So it can only be a sin if it's lustful, because the Bible does condemn lust. Um, and we as Catholics don't need to have an exact verse, three words together for each thing we're pointing to. We have the tradition, both the Jewish oral tradition and Christian tradition, and the magisterium to interpret it whenever we're wanting to analyze human behavior in a definitive form. Anything else? Okay, so um, I'm just gonna note the introduction to the next bit. Um, so the page seven onwards, I've then got three pages um, on the difficulty between, as Christians, in a sense, uniting the Old and New Testament together when they disagree on a, a couple points of, of sexuality. Um, so the issues we have um, are polygamy in the Old Testament. So you know King David, King Solomon, loads of wives. Um, how do we make sense of that? Um, and then the Mosaic permission to divorce and remarry. How do we make sense of that when Jesus then comes along, the fulfillment of the Jewish law, but somehow then contradicting it? So, going through my notes here, page seven. Two problematic issues with respect to the Old Testament versus the New. How can a practice be permitted under the Old Testament, but then be forbidden in the New Testament? So three substantial issues relating to sex and marriage present themselves. Polygamy, concubinage, and remarriage after divorce. So concubines, so um, Abraham had two short, um, sons, one by his wife, one by his concubine. And he is the origin of Judaism. So that's a bit of a problem. So in each case, we have a practice tolerated under the old law, even though it's not endorsed or explicitly permitted, and that actually is very significant. The practice is then forbidden under the new. And the basic point is that God reveals himself and his truth gradually, and his fullness he reveals only in the fullness of time. So before... Um, actually, I'm going to stop there um, before I get lost in my notes here. Um, but the basic point is that, you know, God's revelation is gradual. He never contradicts himself. But what he says 
is gradual. Um, and that the teaching in St. Thomas, um, following Aristotle, is that whatever is received is only received according to the mode of the receiver. So it's not possible to teach calculus to somebody who doesn't understand algebra, if a mathematical analogy helps. You can't take a two-year-old and explain nuclear physics. You've got to work gradually. Um, and in the same way in the Old Testament, God taught gradually, while never lying. Um, but there are things that are not explicit or not commented on that gradually do get commented on. So that somehow by the end of the Old Testament, polygamy is unthinkable. But in the beginning of the Old Testament, our great figure Abraham and David and Solomon have lots of wives. But God doesn't tell them to have lots of wives. He just doesn't comment on it. And as much as there is a comment, anyway, next week. All right. Thank you. Now let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, for all without end. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, thank you all.